Hi, I'm Rosie, and you're listening to the second season of What Does Your Family Look Like? We are kicking off season two of What Does Your Family Look Like? Talking about everyday people and how extraordinary they really are. Today, we are here with my dear niece, Stephanie, to talk about her courageous grandmother, Paula. And by the way, courageous doesn't even scratch the surface. Her story is nothing short of a miracle, as she survived several concentration camps in World War II during the Holocaust. Auschwitz in Poland, which was one of the most notorious of the death camps, Dachau in Germany, and Buchenwald in Germany. I'd like to take a moment to credit the Yad Vashem website. It was very helpful to my fact-gathering. So, prior to 1938, Pola was an everyday woman living an everyday life in Lutz, Poland. And then the life she knew and held so dearly was ripped from her, her existence becoming one of horror and tragedy. On September 8, 1939, Pola would have been about 17. Germany occupied Lutz. Persecution of the Jews began immediately, and just 10 days later, all Jewish businesses were taken over by the Germans. Jews were not allowed to use public transportation or leave the city without permission, not allowed to own cars or radios. By January 1940, Jews were forbidden to ride trains. The Lutz Ghetto was formed on April 30, 1940. It was the second largest ghetto in the German-occupied areas and severely shut off from its surroundings and any news of the outside world. No one could get in or get out, as the walls of the ghetto were heavily manned. Deportations from the ghetto to the death camps began in 1942, which was when Pola was sent to Auschwitz. How she survived is the ultimate question. How do you lose your family, witness unimaginable atrocities, live malnourished for years, and have the will to live, make a new life, and seek refuge in a new land, America? Well, let's listen as Paula's life story unfolds. Welcome, Steph. Thanks Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here and sharing this amazing story. Your grandmother, or Bubby, as you called her, was quite a woman. It must have been quite an honor to be her granddaughter. It was definitely big as I, I mean, ever since I can remember, I knew that she'd had a pretty miraculous story and that she survived hardship. I mean, it's sort of like from the very beginning, I knew she had numbers on her arm. Yeah, how did you, you knew they were numbers, but of course as a kid you wouldn't know what the numbers were for. You know what? My grandmother was very open. She would tell you it was from the concentration camp. My grandfather, on the other hand, was very tight-lipped. He didn't think... Oh. Any children should hear anything bad, okay, particularly horrific like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was pretty open, she would say. So let's talk about about when was Bubby born. 
I guess in like the 1920s. Okay. Dates. Okay. Um, I'm so glad you helped with getting all the timeline straight because her birth certificate was, um, we're never sure which one was hers or her sister's because when everything began, you just had to make yourself as young as possible. And why was that? Because the younger you were, the more valuable you were If as the start of the war. Mm-hmm. And they started to realize that either too young and too old were being mm-hmm. taken away, killed. Who knew? You right. know, you weren't, it wasn't, a, I don't think they really totally got what was going on initially. Right. When the war, when, when not just the war started, but the. When they started rounding up rounding people for up. the ghetto. Yeah. And, yeah. They, it was unbelievable. I mean, they were living in Poland, living in everyday life, being everyday people. And yeah, the she thought had, of something like that would have been impossible to imagine. Well, she had, you know, a husband, a son. Um, I know that she would talk about how when she put him in the stroller and rolled him around, like everyone would stop. And he was the most beautiful baby. Of course. Of course. So the baby's name was? Meyer. Um, Do you know what her first husband's name was I don't I don't but um fast forward my dad (laughs) is named Meyer I wonder if that was a coincidence I don't I think that was might have been a little um, heaven sent there yeah I think so um but yeah uh and at the start of the war I think as things started to look pretty scary unfortunately her husband took off with most of the money and valuables I do recall the stories that he left okay. and took everything. I would like to think that he thought if I can get out and get a place or get safe, that I could then make passage make, for them. Right. But I will say it was never okay. Um, What's well, not clear? Super charitably. Well, he probably didn't even make it. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. I, I yeah, I would agree with that for so, sure. She is, what did she do for a living? Um, what was her trade? I think she must have been a seamstress. That that skill, that trade, pretty much followed her entire life. Okay. She was able to use that skill. Okay. The scene is, the Germans come in, they occupy Lutz. It's clear that the old people are in harm's way. So she had her mom living with her. And because of her age, she was in fear for her mom's life. And, but she was still working because she had to make a living, right? So yeah. what did she do? This yeah, is an interesting she, story. What did she do to yeah, help she, her mother, to save her mother? Yeah, like while well, she would, um, I guess in the ghetto, mm-hmm. you know, now the, the routine was you went to a place to work and her um, son would go to the infirmary, like a daycare situation. And her mom, she would hide in her in a potato bin because she knew that if they really knew everybody that was in that house, that her mom would have definitely been taken mm-hmm. and equals killed right. because she's not useful. Right. She's not useful to the Nazis. So they right. Would... And the baby for the time he was taking every day to this area where they, I guess, held the kids. OK, so tell me he was about how old. Um, I think he was probably no older than two. He might have been one or two. Okay. Okay. So she feels like she deposits her son at this daycare type place 
and hopefully, you know, he, she goes to work and he's safe and the mother hopefully is okay in the potato bin. So if the Nazis happen to inspect, they can't find her. Um, and one unfortunate, sad day, what happens? Well, she came back and so the women said, They were throwing babies out of the windows into trucks, clearing the infirmary. Um, I remember her kind of vividly explaining that they were trying to run after the trucks and grab him out of the truck, and they couldn't, couldn't, and all the kids were just sort of just cleared. Gosh, Steph, I don't even know how you recover after experiencing the unthinkable, losing your baby. You know, maybe you just shut down and you just do as you're told. Like your whole life has been... But there was something inside her brain that said, I have to keep going. Bubby always kept going. Yeah, I don't think that she was capable, just down to her core, to give up and stop. Yeah. That was... that's, That's incredible. It's probably what helped her throughout the whole ordeal. Um, I'd like to think that that will has stayed with our whole family of women. Yeah. Because we're a bunch of tough ladies. Yes, yes you are. <laughs> so the mother survives the potato bin <laughs> long enough to get transported to the concentration camp, which I believe, I think the first one might have been Auschwitz. Can you tell us about that story? So they get off the train they can start seeing that there's lines being formed. And the first thing my grandmother explains is that she can see that they're taking people's furs. You know, I guess at that point when they were in line, you when they left the ghetto, they took everything that they, all of their belongings, all of their valuables. So she could see people, the Germans were taking their, their items and their jewelry. So again, that sort of will to, to, to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, she got all of the valuables off of herself, off of her mom and sister, and just started burying it into the ground. They, they say the sand, I'm not sure of the, the geography, but they definitely started burying it in the dirt because they said they would rather bury it than give it to them. That's right. And uh, then also, uh, the longer they were there, then they realized they were handing out soap and washcloths and so then they started separating her mom and sister go one way she's in a different line and she figured out they'd never see each other again that they were killing you know it was a line of mostly older people mm-hmm. and they were and the going soap to the guests and the wash cloth is just a ruse to yeah. get them into the building. Well, right. So everybody and cooperates. Everybody yes, cooperates. we're just going to take a shower and right. make sure you're clean. And I guess the travel on the train, God knows the oh conditions. Oh my gosh, the so. lice and the yeah, horrible, horrible conditions. Exactly. Over, overcrowded, you know, feces so, yeah, in, so. the, in, the, in the train. It was horrible. It was unbearable conditions. So, what, so there's a left, right, left, right, and your grandmother goes, your grandmother's mother yeah ends up going in the gas chamber line with the sister yeah and and um you know at that point just the way my grandmother you know it's it's a dichotomy between the fight the anger to keep going and then on the other hand there she told stories where she would give her food away she 
she would be given a ration of a potato or whatever, and she'd give it away because she'd say, I'm not going to make it. You take it. I'm, I'm not going to make, I'm not surviving this. Yeah. Yet. Survive he- she did. I, I wanted to tell you, I did a little research, and I think it's kind of interesting to all of us in our audience. Um, and it had to do, do you, have you heard of Viktor Frankl? Victor Frankl was an author. He wrote a book called The Man's Search for Meaning. He was also a Holocaust survivor. And he was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist as well as a Holocaust survivor who lost a lot of family members. And he talks about the desire to live being the primary motive of human life. And it's this desire that gets you through the most unbearable of situations, i.e. the concentration camps. And so he kind of used this kind of thought process for himself. He said, we can't change our surroundings, but we can change ourselves and how we think. And the Nazis could take everything from us, everything, but our inner thoughts. And these thoughts churned into motivation to live, whether it was to think about reconnecting with a loved one again, or to keep just to keep living so as to give meaning to the ones who perished so they didn't die in vain um, or to live to tell the story so it doesn't happen again um, now this is a stretch but what do you th- do you think knowing your grandmother what do you think it was for Paula because she had to think of something that kept her so rooted in living I I feel like I mean, her brother, maybe, maybe on some level, maybe she thought she would find that baby again. Maybe she, you know, maybe you, you think, okay, well, I'm probably my mother's gone, but maybe since she didn't see her, the son be taken away, maybe on some level she thought she could find him again. Right. So it seems to me by the, our, all the stories that we've heard that, it would be a total of about six years that Paula did. It was like about two years in the ghetto where she was oppressed. Then she was in various concentration camps. And then there's liberation. And then the people, they're displaced people. They're in displacement camps or DP camps. Uh, and Paula had a very, very vivid memory of the liberation and at this point she was in Buchenwald now you are about to hear a new voice the voice of Pola's daughter Molly and Bobby also said that she saw Eisenhower come through the concentration camp so she was in Buchenwald but I don't know how long she was there but that's where she saw him. And, and she said that all the, all the soldiers had cameras and they were taking pictures. And she said, because nobody, Eisenhower said, nobody is going to believe this. We have to take pictures. And everybody, she said, all the men had pictures, cameras to take pictures. David, Paula's second husband and neighbor from before the war, he endured similar experiences as Paula did. Both lost spouses and children. Both were in several concentration camps and both had the tenacity and sheer will 
to survive the atrocities put upon them. Here's David's liberation story, as told by Molly. And by the way, the word Zadie that Molly uses to refer to her father, it means grandfather. Zadie said they were trying to get rid of a lot of prisoners, and they brought trucks, they filled the trucks up. He was in one of the trucks. And they were driving down a road. It was a, a, group, a line of trucks, and they were all going to be dead. And all of a sudden, I think it was French, the, they, they were dropping bags of food, and the Nazis got out of the trucks and ran, and the prisoners, of course, broke the, tr- the backs of the trucks out and ran and hid in the woods, and he got, you know, I almost forgot this, and he grabbed a bag, and it was a bread. I think it was a rye bread or something, and he just ate it until it made him sick because he hadn't eaten in such a long time. People, people were dying because they were eating so much that their, their systems couldn't handle it. And Zadie said he took one little bite at a time. He said, but they were killing themselves eating. There's liberation. There's the DP camps. And I'd like to give you some, a little bit of information about um, after the liberation, the prisoners of the concentration camps, they were moved to these DP camps, as I said. And they were in the occupied zones of Germany, Austria, and Italy. And it was here that the survivors first started to rebuild their lives. And the desire for life and human relationships were overwhelming. The coupling of men and women for no other reason than I'm alive, you're alive, we understand what each other experienced and the losses we endured was enough to make a bond, to start a new life together. Love wasn't important. Surviving was. They've learned, whoever made it through these camps, they learned to survive. So the forming of couples made it possible for these souls to begin the rehabilitation and normalization process. So enter David, who was Paula's second husband, and also a survivor of the concentration camps. Let's listen in again to Molly's story of how David and Paula reconnected in the DP camp. David was living with Charles. Charles was her youngest brother, and he survived. David recognized her and knew who she was. He w- she said to me, he wouldn't leave me alone. He wouldn't leave me alone. So he was um, ready to be with someone he knew. Talk about the will to live, to keep going, to be open to starting over again. Well, I knew David and Paula since I was eight years old. Admittedly, I didn't understand their broken English, and their ways were a little foreign to me. But as I grew up, and learned about their unbelievable story of survival, my love and respect for them grew. I was truly blessed to know them. I look forward to you hearing the second installment to Paula's story next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of What Does Your Family Look Like? 
please like and subscribe and follow us on all social media at WDYFLL, the podcast.